Welcome to Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And we are back today to examine The Wire as a Southern Gothic. Um, So I guess it's a subset of the Gothic genre generally. And um, we're looking at at it as, yeah, a Southern Gothic. And we'll give some other examples. But Kel, maybe you can tell us what is the South? Well, first of all, Bailey, welcome back. We have missed you on the podcast. Um, Thank you. We have had some exciting guests while you've been away, and I know I've missed your co-hosting uh, skills while you've been gone. Well, it's been you've been doing an amazing job while I was gone, and I loved all of the interviews that you did and Thank you for, like, just holding us down while I was away, raising a baby. Raising a baby. Well, and for our listeners who have not yet joined us, we did start hosting uh, kind of community discussions on Twitter spaces. So uh, Bailey's been a part of those for the past few months, and that has uh, been really good fun to get kind of a casual conversation going among our followers. Yeah, and uh, we're going to try to do those on Wednesday evenings once a month, right? Usually starting at around 7 p.m. EST. Yep. So um, keep an eye out for that because, uh, well, well, this po- this one probably won't be out in time for our next one, but um, definitely watch for our February announcement for sure. And if you have any ideas of what you want us to talk about, then also submit them. Yeah, we're always looking for topics and uh, really keen to hear what other people have been thinking about with The Wire. So, okay, with that out of the way, welcome back, Bailey, and let's talk about Southern Gothic. First of all, Bailey, this is a topic you have been wanting to dig into for a long time, and we've kind of had it on the back burner while you were uh, with beautiful baby Isaiah. So tell us why you wanted to talk about Southern Gothic. Well, I, it was of course during one of my most recent rewatches, um, of the wire. And I just, um, started thinking about again, you know, as a Gothic novel, if the wire was written as a Gothic novel, what it would be like. But then, uh, I can't remember exactly how, but I, sort of stumbled across this subgenre of Southern Gothic. And I was really interested because um, I'm also sort of just like obsessed with all things the South and the low country um, specifically. And uh, Kel, maybe we should talk a little bit about our our South of 49 road trip that we did a couple of years ago. Yeah, tell everyone about it. This was when I was just had finished watching The Wire, so early in my fandom, Bailey, you were already a super fan at that point, but tell everyone about the road trip we did. So, um, Kel and I, again, because we seem to share a brain, we obviously both love The Wire, but we also both love the true crime uh, book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, when we were growing up. And I, after reading that book, had always wanted to go to Savannah. And what we decided to do a few years ago was drive. So uh, many listeners probably know we're we're Canadians. We're located uh, in Ottawa, Ontario. So we drove from Ottawa um, to 
uh, our first night was in Baltimore and we plotted the route and we knew that we wanted to go to Baltimore after watching The Wire and we, de we did a self-guided driving tour of the different scenes, like the different places you could go Locations. where they filmed. And so that was super fun. And then the next night we had planned to go to Raleigh, but then we decided that that was just kind of like a random city. And so instead we drove to Virginia Beach yeah. And uh, spent the second night in Virginia Beach. Third night, we went to Charleston, which was my actual favorite part of the trip. I loved Charleston. Um, and then we ended up in Savannah on our fourth night. So, yeah, it took us four nights to get there, but we found ourselves in Savannah and we did a self guided walking tour of Savannah. Um, haunted walk. Haunted walk. Yeah, or yeah, sorry, a haunted walk. Um, which included actually the Mercer House in uh, in Savannah, which is where um, the Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil sort of takes place. And we'll talk more about maybe that experience yeah. as we go through what we want to talk about with Southern Gothic. But it was a great trip. And then on the way back, we hit uh, Pitmaster Rodney Scott's place in uh, Havelock. Was it Havelock, South Carolina? Hemingway. Hemingway, South Carolina. Yeah, and that was pretty exciting and... Yeah, it was just it was awesome, and we spent a lot of time in the car because it was a road trip, yeah. and got to really absorb the atmosphere of the south and uh, observe how it kind of changed the further along our route that we went. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I loved that trip, and as you said, Bailey, this was all inspired by our love of both The Wire and the novel by John Berendt called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Yeah. Which is Southern Gothic. Exactly. So, uh, Kelly, one of the things that I really remember from our trip was driving down, and I think we had just sort of come into Virginia, which um, actually this ties in to the question I wanted to ask too. And, and you, I think we had just gotten in into Virginia or maybe a little bit south of Virginia where you felt like you said like, okay, like I see the change in sort of the flora and the fauna. Like I feel like I'm somewhere other than Ontario now. Um, and I actually had never really thought of Virginia as being a Southern state. To me, it seemed far enough north that it would be considered a northern state but of course um based on the history of the civil war which we looked up when we were there that it's it's really about that mason dixon line um yeah and that virginia north. especially being a stronghold of the confederacy um mm -hmm. but you're right that the idea of what counts as the south is kind of fluid and we're Canadian, so we'll sort of stay in our lane a little bit and refer to other materials, but it's not um, hard and fast answers around what states count as southern states or, or part of the quote-unquote south of the U.S. Right. So using other materials, what do, you, what do you think we should, you know, how do we define the south then as, as Yankee northerners, not even Americans? Well, so there was this article that I was reading earlier this week in preparation for this podcast 
uh, trying to define when I was trying to get a, a definition of what is the South and it's from Reclamation Magazine. We'll put it in our show notes, but it it kind of states that there is along that um, eastern edge of the United States, there is what people call the East Coast and then all of a sudden it's the South. So hmm. you're, you're on the East Coast when you're in like Philadelphia and uh, so forth, but then all of a sudden, right around the Washington, D.C., Maryland region, then that would constitute the South. And one of the major reasons is that, yes, it's south of the Mason-Dixon line, which is sort of the defining geographical feature, but also uh, Maryland's history um, in the Confederacy, it wasn't a Confederate state, but it was a slaveholding state, um, it does have a long history of, uh, like, racial exploitation and racial tension. And it also is not really um, a coastal state. Like, it does have, um, you know, the inlets, which we see in the wire and the ports, but it's not really accurate to call it an East Coast state. Okay. Interesting. And I think that's also interesting that really is about that eastern part of the United States. We actually, for a period in our childhood, did live in Arizona. And I would never, I guess people would call it the Southwest. But if you yeah. talk about the South, nobody would think of Arizona, even though it's as basically far south in the U.S. as you can go. Well, because the idea of the South in literature and the sort of everyone's consciousness is very much tied to the history of slavery and it's impossible to separate those uh, two ideas, slavery and the South. And so that's why Arizona really, no one would ever refer to it as being part of the South even though it is on the Southern border. It's because okay. it doesn't have that same legacy of um, of slavery as part of the economic buildup. But so let me read part of this article from Reclamation. It says, one of the largest issues is how we define Southern and what do we do with these labels? Historically speaking, any state below the Mason-Dixon line and west of the Mississippi would be considered the South, which Maryland and Washington, D.C. are. And then it goes on to say that Maryland would become a booming slave colony with over 40% of the population consisting of enslaved people. Wow. Yeah. And also, uh, later on in the article, I won't read it, but it states that in the pursuit of freedom, um, escaped enslaved people or, or refugee enslaved folks would have to keep going past Maryland if they wanted to seek freedom in the North. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So... Um, I think that's really interesting and, um, definitely, again, this is, a, you know, a complete other podcast topic, not this podcast, and there are people who have analyzed it in a much better way, but I think it really does then also speak to how you, you can't talk about Southern cooking without talking about appropriation of Black folks and Black culture and, and of course, recognizing that really what you're talking about is West African cooking for the most part when you talk about Southern cuisine. Yeah, 
And that was a, a huge part of what we wanted to learn and explore on our road trip was uh, the, the cuisine of the South and the influences there. Yeah. So okay. that is very, uh, sorry, that was a bit of a digression into um, the history of, of slavery in the South, but it's important because Southern Gothic very much relies on the legacy of slavery um, as part of a specter of why we feel unsettled. Okay. Well, and I think, so that might help us. We can talk about the definition of Southern Gothic that we're using for the purposes of this. And again, we can put this in the, in the show notes is coming from the Oxford research encyclopedia, which defines Southern Gothic as a mode or a genre prevalent in literature from the early 19th century to this day. Characteristics of Southern Gothic include the presence of irrational, horrific, and transgressive thoughts, desires, and impulses, grotesque characters, dark humor, and an overall angst-ridden sense of alienation. And as you said, key to this is is that piece of um, oppression, racial segregation, exploitation of, of, of slaves, and that, that history of, of um, slavery. So that's the... Uh, definition that we're using and of course folks who know of the gothic genre a lot of those things are going to sound really familiar if you were looking at you know Frankenstein Um, it also has that sense of grotesque characters and uh, the the irrational and the horror piece of it but of course it's not it's not tied to that geographic place and the history of that geographic place, the dark history of that geographic place. Yeah, if we think about Gothic generally as characterized by a pervasive sense of dread, Southern Gothic really emerges from, um, after the Civil War, the economic decline in the South because their economy was so um, reliant on the institution of slavery that then there was um, the crumbling of, uh, of the way of life as, as Southerners had perceived it up till then. So some of the most recognized names in Southern Gothic literature would be William Faulkner, uh, who wrote The Sound and the Fury. It's probably the most famous one, but also Absalom, Absalom, and As I Lay Dying. Flannery O'Connor, who wrote a lot of short stories, in the Southern Gothic tradition, and Edgar Allan Poe, who uh, there actually is a little reference to Edgar Allan Poe in The Wire. Poe did live in Baltimore for a time, so uh, there's certainly some some precedent there. And one of Edgar Allan Poe's most famous uh, short stories that exemplifies Southern Gothic is The Fall of the House of Usher which is very much concerned with the decay of the family home as a symbol of the decay of sort of life itself. I had no idea Edgar Allan Poe lived in Baltimore. I thought he was a Brit. No, no. No. See, this is why I didn't get a master's. Really? He's not British. (laughs) What? He he no, he's not a Brit. I didn't know that. I had no idea. 
Yeah. I well, think I really glossed over a lot of what happened in English class. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I also spent, like, another number of years studying yeah, exactly. it. Yeah, so. exactly. This is yeah, why he, you have the actually, He died in Baltimore. That's where he lived at the end of his life. I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, there is, so the joke that I was referring to in The Wire is when, um, I think it's season four, someone's asking directions, it's a tourist in the scene, asking directions to the Poe house, as in the house where Edgar Allan Poe lived, and the corner kids kind of do a little play on words and say, oh, the Poe house, as in poor, um, and they kind of make a pun to say, like, oh, the the Poe house is where, like, we all live or something along those lines. I'm kind of butchering it, but. Wow. Well, I'll have to live, I'll have to watch that again because obviously that went right over my head because I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, I'm glad we uh, discussed that. (laughs) So really when we're talking about Southern Gothic, though, we want to talk about the John Berendt book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, And that's kind of what we're going to form the substance of our uh, analysis on today. Yes. So Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, um, I, well, we both really were into this book. It came out in 1994 based on the author John Brandt's experiences in Savannah, Georgia uh, for the 10 plus years prior to that. Um, and it is based on real events, real people, with some fictionalizations here and there. Um, and there, the phrase uh, non-fiction novel has been used to describe uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which I think is kind of a, a cool term and appropriate also to apply to The Wire, because it's novelistic in its fictionality but it also is non-fiction in the way that it draws on true characters true um events but also the even the naming conventions around like landsman is a real person um Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a couple other examples of of uh characters named after real folks Well, and it is interesting because I think a lot of it really comes from David Simon's true crime, homicide life on the street. And technically, a lot of people also call Midnight in the Garden of Evil a a true crime novel. Um, But of course, I I mean, like you said, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil has a lot of fictionalized, you know, elements to it. So Yeah, so like if Homicide Life on the Street, the book were um, analogous to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the book, The Wire, coming out of that first source material, would be analogous to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the film, which came out in 1997. Okay, yes. Because that fictionalized it even further. Right, 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 right. So one of the, I mean, first pieces that we can draw... um, parallels for are the sculptures so there is uh on the cover of the midnight in the garden of good and evil there's a photo of a statue um in in a cemetery and uh it's it's the statue is called bird girl 
And the inscription on the statue reads, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Yeah, and uh, we'll put a picture up of this statue because I found it very strikingly similar in style to the statues in The Low Rises, Boy with a Harmonica and Girl with a Book, uh, sculpted by Edward Berg. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Right. And what's interesting about those those, um, statues that are featured quite predominantly in the opening credits of The Wire um, and in lots of other places too, certainly in a few scenes, um, is that they were... um, they were part of a conservation project for many sculptures in Baltimore, and those two uh, were definitely, they represent education and recreation for the youth. And um, and so there you can find uh, Baltimore City minutes from these from a meeting of a, of a city committee interested in preserving the, the sculptures. What's so really, they, sorry, they had, really. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say they had some significance. Well, what's I think really interesting about the sculpture element is that the two sculptures, as you just said, in Baltimore were part of a major conservation project, uh, restoration and conservation. In Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, um, Jim Williams, who is the main character aside from the author, the main uh, sort of rich figure of society, he goes on a major conservation project trying to revitalize and restore the historical row houses of Savannah. Mm, yes. Yeah, and the reason I bring that up and why it's important is that Southern Gothic literature is wholly concerned with decay, deterioration, the falling apart of both the tangible and intangible um, fixtures in our lives. And that's why the um, House of Usher story by Edgar Allan Poe is a hallmark of Southern Gothic because the house, you know, crumbles in front of the narrator's very eyes. And, Mm. uh, yeah, so I I just found that kind of interesting. The sculptures have a similar style, and the conservation efforts in the South that take place in real life in both cities, Savannah and Baltimore, are very reflective, I think, of the real life manifestations of Southern Gothic, which is a concern around preservation and especially preservation of the past. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is a question to be asked there is, should it even be preserved? You know, is this a past we should be trying to commemorate or preserve or recognize? And in the last two years, as we've seen more and more, um, you know, cultural figures, political, historical figures be called out for their roles in these horrific histories, you know, I think, yeah, that's that's part of it. And I don't think The Wire or Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil uh, ask that question outright. And th- I don't know even if it's fair to, to say that they should because they were part of such a different time period, but yeah. Yeah, you're right. I don't think either of them really interrogate the appropriateness of the statues or the um, memorial fixtures. 
but like you said, it was kind of a different time. Um, and Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. That's a complicated one. So some of the other, um, elements of a Southern Gothic is, uh, the also, again, looking at a, at a West African influences voodoo and spirituality. Um, and you know, voodoo meaning I think in some ways, a, a misrepresentation of traditional West African spiritualities, but definitely, uh, that voodoo has a huge role in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Do you want to talk about that, Kel? Yeah, so Minerva is the practitioner of voodoo in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil who Jim Williams um, approaches to kind of influence the outcome of his murder trial and try to um, sway the jury in his favor. And there's some uh, ritualizing of... I, I mean, I think it's probably pretty bastardized, at least in the film adaptation. But, um, yeah, basically, Jim Williams counts on Minerva to cast some sort of voodoo spell in his favor to affect his uh, outcome. And it's kind of brief, but there's a reference to Madame LaRue in The Wire, mm-hmm. which... Uh, I think we don't ever really get too, too much information on Madame LaRue, but it does come up as a, uh, Santangelo, is it Santangelo? Yep, Santangelo, when uh, the, I think it's um, Rawls that won't let him go to other cases until he solves a cold case. Yeah, and um, I don't remember who hands him the card of Madame LaRue. It might be Landsman or it might it's be... Landsman, yeah. Yeah, and Santangelo follows the the practices, and when he solves the case, he does think that it's Madame LaRue. That's kind of his first inclination, is that Madame LaRue solved it. And then, um, I forget what Landsman says, something about, like, cut the hippie bullshit or something. Yeah, he says that was just good police work. Yeah, and so, I don't know, that kind of does a little bit of undermining, but I think the presence of the superstition is strong. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about it in uh, Midnight in the Garden of Evil, too, is that there's it's, it's something that is very much taken seriously from all the Southern characters in the book. Like, Minerva is sort of a revered character where... Um, there's absolutely a strong belief in what she's doing and that it's working. And in a way it sort of others the author because he is a northerner, right? And so his sort of dubiousness and and questioning of Minerva and the impact that this is actually going to have on uh, the case, it very much like makes that north-south divide between them culturally very apparent. Yeah, yeah. John Barrent is a Yankee. They call him. He's from New York. And so he's very on the outside and has to play the role of observer and interpreter. And in a way, The Wire kind of asks that of us, being on the outside of the five institutions that are portrayed. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you go. 
I was just going to say, related to the idea of um, voodoo spirits and superstition and spirituality is the trope of the supernatural or the uh, the mysterious, um, I guess supernatural is the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. That was literally exactly what I was going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, go on. Well, yeah, so um, I, well, I was going to say that, you know, the supernatural definitely, I think one of the most, um, one of the strongest themes in The Wire with the supernatural is season four and the belief in Chris and Snoop turning people into zombies and uh, the, how the, all the, the, the boys of summer Michael and the gang really kind of believe that that's what actually is happening, except then finally Dookie, especially Randy believes it, and then Dookie is able to tell Randy that, you know, they're just executing people. Um, but they definitely all believe that there is there is a zombie apocalypse afoot. Yeah, and it's part of that is um, the youth uh, element uh, because they are young Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of haunting that goes on in uh, other characters as well I mean I think uh, Wallace is young too but Wallace can't get beyond the image of Brandon um, splayed out Mm -hmm. on the van and that's kind of haunting him in much the same way that Jim Williams feels haunted by Danny um, the hustler Mm -hmm. in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil where it's this um, feeling of almost not being able to escape the the gaze of the victim. And back to Poe, I mean, that was a strong theme, and I'm thinking of the Telltale Heart specifically in the Edgar Allan Poe short story, yep. where he can, you know, there's... I guess the murder and and the the murderer can hear the thumping of the heart that in the baseboards where it's been buried, but of course it there isn't. Well, I don't know. Maybe there is, but <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't remember the end of the story. I no, I think it's his sort of conscience. Yeah, it's him. his conscience. It's going. It's there's madness. There's, there's yeah, there's something. madness, and mm-hmm. the the haunting element relates back to the history the haunting haunting terrible tragic history that looms over the south and people are haunted on an individual level like uh like wallace with brandon they're haunted by um well frank sabotka for instance is is haunted in a way by the dead girls in the can we see Mm -hmm. him staring at his own reflection in the mirror and um can't really can't really escape the guilt of, of his role in that, um, whatever it might have been, even if he was not fully aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then there's, as you said, we went on the haunted walk in Savannah, and I think Savannah is kind of thought of as one of the most haunted places in America. And the bed and breakfast where we stayed was on the list of haunted buildings, which we did not know when we booked it. <laughs> and then do you want to tell about your story when we walked by the Mercer house? Yeah, we did our haunted walk. And actually it was fascinating 
just to see how many um, sites of violence there were in a very small radius. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, I don't even like walking and yeah, we're not walkers. We're not, <laughs> yeah, we're not walkers. So we didn't walk that far, but we still went to like eight or 10 houses. And I did see a specter at the Mercer house, which is where Jim Williams shot Danny. I saw a specter open up the door and glare at us for being there and then shut the door. And then when I mentioned it, Bailey, you said there's no one there. Yeah, I had I didn't see it, and I was standing right next to you. We were looking at the house together, so it we was. We were looking really at the cool. house at the same time, and I saw the specter open the door and glare at us and tell us to go away. Yeah, so that was really. Uh, I thought that was an interesting piece of our Savannah trip for sure. Yeah. Um. So, like I just said about the uh, the haunting history, it's. Often in, in Southern Gothic, a, a grotesque history, and it manifests in grotesque ways. Um, sometimes that can include uh, deformities, physical deformities, or um, grotesque violence. And Bailey, we had an episode in our podcast in our very first season, or maybe it was our second season, about the spectacle of violence as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um which is certainly grotesque with Brandon, as we just said, being splayed out on the van and tortured in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are all sorts of ways that the the current violence is continued to, uh, it stays present even when it's not part of the exact ongoing plot. There are visual cues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's... Um... You know, David Simon uses a lot of different cues. Even in the opening scene of the very first episode, we really, the one of the first things you see is that pool of blood on the sidewalk and then, and then going to the face of Snot Boogie, the victim of violence. Um, Chris Parlow beating uh, Michael's stepfather to death with his bare hands, I think is another example of that. Yeah, plus just the signage, Bodymore Murderland, as mm-hmm. uh, um, a sign, we, well, we see it in every episode. Yeah. Um, and I think, so again, another quality of a Southern Gothic that certainly differentiates it from the just general Gothic genre is the focus on the history of slavery and um, and then again and the racial tension and the social anxieties that are represented in the racial tension. Um, I, so that happens in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Uh, Joe Odom, who's sort of a, like a bon vivant man about town <laughs> kind of person in the... He tells... John Brand, we don't do black on white in Savannah. And I think he's referring to the Lady Chablis, who is a transgender uh, drag queen. And she has a white boyfriend, and the Lady Chablis is black. And uh, so, you know, Joe isn't even really necessarily focusing on the gender identities or the sexuality of the people in question, but the fact that it's an interracial uh, dating situation. Yeah, and that um, line that you just read, we don't do black and white in Savannah, 
that is a theme highly prevalent in Southern Gothic. William Faulkner uh, novels are often um, detailing miscegenation is what it was called. Um, miscegenation being interracial relationships. And there were actually anti-miscegenation laws in place. And so there was a lot of anxiety about um, preserving purity of whiteness in the South. Um, and Joe Odom, uh, Joe Odom would have said this in the 80s, uh, not to excuse the sentiment, but just to give a little bit of context. Yeah. Um, I think it's also interesting in The Wire, I'm thinking of the scene in the restaurant where um, D'Angelo and his girlfriend are there and he's feeling uncomfortable and he's starting to question who he is and his identity as working in the Barksdale organization. And when he starts expressing his discomfort and asking her, you know, do you think that people here know who I am? She immediately presumes it's about race. And she says, you know, you're not the only black person in here. Like there's no need to be uncomfortable. And, uh, and you know, he, that's not what D'Angelo is talking about, but it is, certainly ever present um in the wire as well yeah and we see it again in season four when um bunny colvin takes the kids to ruth chris steakhouse not that it's explicitly a racialized tension in that moment but it draws on um an economic disparity that is rooted in racial lines essentially mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think there's a lot of a lot of examples um, throughout too. I, I think the shift certainly in from season one to season two about who's doing undercover and Herc is, you know, really pleased that finally he's going to be able to go undercover as a white boy in season two. Um, and then when he's, you know, copying, basically he adopts a black scent and is, uh, you know, that they, they talk about, wiggas and stuff I think what's interesting about that is you see Kima say like oh they steal everything um and yeah. again talking about the appropriation of black culture well and Ziggy does the same in season two when he's uh working with Frog and, and White Mike and starts getting this um vernacular uh language yeah. and and Nick makes fun of him but that's not the only example we also see when Carcetti running for mayor goes to court the black reverends association and then goes to the black church. And there's this kind of weird, um, awkwardness for the Carcetti family as they're trying to kind of perform this, this cultural style of worship that is not theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's sort of an ever present sense of that in the wire too. And, um, and so I think, uh, you know, that's another way where it really becomes quite obvious. Yeah, um, the racial tension, like, it's, it's, it's the reminder that the racial tensions um, continue and that they are not part of the past. They, they go on and they still go on even in the 10, 15, 20 years since The Wire. Yeah. And there's another uh, piece in The Midnight of Garden of Good and Evil where they talk about the St. Patrick's Day parade and how um, a Union soldier is sprawled motionless, like acting as a, 
as a tableau, again, I think still trying to support the Confederacy. And I, 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 you know, I, I was shocked in Virginia how many Confederate flags we saw when we were in the South. And I, I was just really surprised because to me that is just such a symbol of white supremacy and racism. Um, and I know that there are people who argue that it's just a symbol of the South, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's just, it's interesting and, and Berend, again, as a, as a Northerner seeing this, um, this tableau of the dead Union uh, soldier calls it a chilling tableau more so because it was meant to be surreptitious. Yeah, and the sprawled out soldier on the floor of the wagon as a symbol to be marched through the streets is very evocative of Brandon sprawled out motionless on the hood of a van Mm -hmm. meant to be um, marched in the metaphorical sense uh, as a warning. And so very similar um, visual cues there. Um, And in that article that I was reading at the beginning about how do we define the South, it's interesting that uh, it states Maryland has often been able to sort of absolve itself of all of the prejudices against the South and and not be considered fully part of the South for whatever reason. But in the flag of the state of Maryland is the Confederate ensign, and that still Mm -hmm. flies over all of the state buildings and so forth. Interesting. So, yeah, very much tied into that history. Yeah. Um, so another quality of, uh, of the Southern Gothic genre is the deeply flawed, disturbing, or eccentric characters. And I think one of the things that I loved so much about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil growing up was how many very eccentric characters there were. I, I think reading that book was the first time I read a book where I could really imagine like the characters are so well described I could like it was so vivid to me it's not surprising to me that they made it a movie because it was just so um I mean everybody was eccentric right yeah everybody was eccentric and everybody was still believable which i think is really well because they were real in, mm-hmm. <laughs> to begin with but their eccentricity was believable in the way it was captured in the novel i think that's also true of the wire the deeply thought flawed or eccentric characters that we see are still believable um i mean it's i don't even know where to start because everybody is like somewhat flawed, disturbing, or eccentric. Mm -hmm. But none of it goes to the point of caricature. Right, exactly. And back to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, you almost think it it could because, I mean, there's the, there's um, Serena Dawes and Luther Driggers, and Luther is the one who I believe walks his flies around on a on a thread um he has and he's sort of known as the man who has the ability to poison the whole city um because he's sort of this eccentric science scientist character um serena is always just sort of in bed she's just like uh like a woman, I mean, the Lady Chablis was an amazing character. There's the salesman in the store who 
wants to wear makeup but knows the conservative store owner would never allow it. So he just puts a full face of makeup on one side of his face and then never turns that side of his face to the store owner. Um, yeah, but then we find out the store owner knows all along. Yeah, and he's yeah. Like, I don't know why he's crab walking all over the place. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the list in the, the uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. But there are, I mean, there is a no more flawed character than McNulty. Yeah, but all, all of them have a, a certain humanity to them. Um, Mm-hmm. Even the ones who maybe start out as we think of them as villains, but then we kind of get to know them. And, and even uh, Jim Williams in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, he did. I mean, we know that he shot Danny Hansen. We know he killed him. But he's so charming and portrayed in such a likable manner that um, it's there's no defining any one character as wholly good or wholly bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another, um, Kelly, you've already kind of touched on this, but it's really, again, like you said, that, that sense of moral and physical decay, and particularly with the decaying buildings and uh, the de- decaying of the plantations and the plantation homes are another element of that Southern Gothic. And I think we definitely see that um, in The Wire. I mean even just, I mean, a lot of the vacants, just the fact that there is the vacants. Yeah, well, there's kind of, um, there's multiple layers of decay at work, and the decay is kind of building on itself and, you know, almost, uh, well, in a grotesque uh, fashion, which is that there are these decaying buildings, the vacants, then the bodies are hid in the decaying buildings and the bodies begin to decay. And then mm-hmm. um, as the bodies are discovered, they're in various stages of decomposition and it's a layering effect. I mean, we've talked in the past, Bailey, about the idea of a palimpsest, which is the layering of text on top of one another, but where the text continues to, to show through or peek through and give you glimpses into the the previous renditions, which the layers of decay in The Wire, I think, are a sort of palimpsest in the way that um, each each additional um, piece to to rot is representative of a, a slice of time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then I think... As you mentioned, too, Jim Williams was really focused on the restoration of the historical district um, in Savannah, and even just sort of the the um, description of Savannah and um, oh, I'm blanking. What's the sister city they talk about? I guess it, I think it's Charleston, actually. Oh no, no, it's uh, Macon, Macon, Georgia, isn't it? Yes, and the, I, I or think Atlanta. I don't know actually. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's Macon. Um, Isn't it the it, line where it says, in Macon, they ask you where to go to church. In Savannah, they ask you what you want to drink. No, that, I'm thinking of the one where they talk about, um, it's, the city is described as a beautiful woman. Beautiful with woman with dirt on her face? Yeah. It's Atlanta, I think. Okay. Well, we'll, let me. <laughs> we'll have to fact check this, obviously. <laughs> 
I'm going to look it up. <laughs> I think it's either Charleston or Atlanta. I'm going to look. But well, Savannah is, is it maybe Is it maybe Savannah that they're speaking of? They are speaking of Savannah. Oh. Savannah, a beautiful woman with a dirty face. Okay. So then, then we know. <laughs> well, I think we were both right in different ways. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so, so describing the city in that way, I think, again, is an example of of the the decay. Yeah, and like um, a, an effort of trying to clean up or clean up at least for appearances sake um that's kind of what the restoration project in midnight in the garden of good and evil is about because i if i remember correctly bailey correct me if i'm wrong but it was more about the um curb appeal of the restoration and there was not a thorough job done of the actual structures and and plumbing and wires and things like that right yeah am i am i right or did i get that mixed up yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think it's also, which is just kind of also significant of many of the critiques of Southern manners and what it what it means to be, um, you know, a, a Christian in the South or whatever. And what it like, what's going on underneath the surface, uh, underneath yeah. the beautiful or shiny and, surface. Yeah, and the idea of doing uh, whatever you're doing for appearances, which... We see that with the police in the wire when they're juking the stats. They're not mm -hmm. really like cleaning up the city. They're just manipulating the numbers to make it look as though things are getting better. Um, moving everything into Amsterdam. Table, putting lots of dope on the table, you know? Just for the yeah, dope thing. on the table spectacle. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of on the table, another trope of Southern Gothic is uh, subversion or darkened religious symbols. Um, like when we have the wake for the fallen policemen in the wire, they're laid out on the table um, in kind of a grotesque funeral um, ritual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I and think... the cemetery in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, there's a lot that happens there as well. Yeah, and I, when, uh, when Madame LaRue is helping Santangelo, she gives him uh, St. Anthony and, uh, or a little statue of St. Anthony and St. Um, St. Michael, I think. And, you know, those are the things that she tells to sleep with under the pillow. And, um, so yeah, there's some, some, I, I don't think that's exactly what those St. Statues are for. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think they are. Um, well, okay, I, we've talked about this for, we've talked about a lot of these things and we could go on and on, but let's um, maybe sum it up by talking about the idea of sinister events that stem from poverty, alienation, crime, or violence, because that is um, sort of a defining overall theme of Southern Gothic, and I think that's obviously clear in The Wire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is really about um, a city reacting to the murder of, of Danny Hansford, who uh, has a history, is known to be a, a, a gigolo or an escort, 
Um, there was the element of homosexuality between him and um, Jim Williams. And, you know, the other thing about Danny was that he wasn't necessarily uh, gay. He was perhaps bisexual. He's described as a walking streak of sex. But he's also known to be highly violent, highly temperamental. Um, and this is something that uh, Jim Williams uses to his defense when he eventually, you know, tries to defend himself himself for shooting and, and killing Danny Hansford. Um, but really what it, what it was rooted in is, is the poverty of Danny. Um, Jim Williams claimed that he was, you know, Danny was extorting him or trying to rob him. And, um, and yeah, so I think that was a, an interesting piece, uh, when it comes to the Southern Gothic genre. Yeah. The socioeconomic gap, um, being used for uh, either an excuse or a rationale or something for violence and we see that in the wire with um the the kids who are either street involved or um living in in foster care of some kind or really um on the brink of of poverty and um the way that the systems use their poverty and their social circumstances to do them even more harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, that, I, that was a lot <laughs> that we just covered. It, I don't even really have any final statement about what it all means other than, Bailey, I think you and I are both really fascinated by the idea that the wire draws on these traditions from Southern Gothic literature and a lot of the anxieties that are in play in the South are in play in Baltimore and in the wire generally. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, an, another really interesting way to look at the wire um, using literary devices and what it means um, to be a Southern Gothic uh, story. Yeah, um, it is the story of America. So yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm so glad you're back, Bailey. It's good to record another episode with you. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's really good to be back. And we will continue to share dates for our Twitter Spacious discussions. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rewired Podcast. Or you can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And let us know um, what you think of the Southern Gothic uh, genre. Let us know some of your favorite. If you've read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and you want to give us your thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Okay. Okay, see you next time. Way, Way down in the hole. Way down in the hole.